please do. I'm here to introduce Scott Gordon. And if you look in your program, it says, Scott Gordon is president of Fair Mormon and as such has been a writer of several articles and a speaker at Firesides. Uh, to me, that's like saying that uh, Abraham Lincoln was a 19th century American politician or that Einstein was a man that had some good ideas. It doesn't begin to give you the idea of how much time and effort Scott has put into um, managing, um, inspiring, um, uh, donating his time and his money to making this organization uh, successful and a, a real tool for um, bringing the gospel to people and helping people who are struggling with uh, issues in their own lives and in their, in their gospel lives. So that little brief uh, statement there does not begin to describe um, all that Scott has done over the past uh, about 18, 19, 20 years. But going on, he has a master's degree in business administration from Brigham Young University which a bachelor, uh, with a bachelor's in organizational communication. He teaches business at Shasta College in Redding, California. He has held many church callings, including bishop, and currently serves as the ward mission leader. He's married to Sherry Farnsworth Gordon and has five children. Scott. Well, the only reason I'm speaking today is because I wanted to get that good-looking cube that's a speaker's gift with Fair Mormon engraved. <laughs> so this talk is, is interesting. I, I've been surprised about the interest in it. Uh, I have members of my ward who want to hear it. I, uh, I know some are actually watching on streaming. I've had several people come up to me even here wondering what I'm going to say on this topic. I, this is a talk, it's slightly revised, but it's a talk I gave at a YSA conference I was invited to speak, speak at in uh, Pescado, did I say that close to right, D? Okay, Pescado, Italy. And, and so they had this YSA conference, and has anybody here been, been to Pescado? Anybody been there? Okay, it's beautiful. It's beaches out on the sea. It's absolutely gorgeous. And here we have a whole group of young people, and they could be out on the beach having fun. And we had like a, a couple of different talks they could go to, but oh, it rained all week for their conference, and the one sunny day, myself and a few other people showed up to give presentations. And, uh, and so then they had a dilemma. They could be out on the beach playing, or they could be in listening to talks from old guys. And, you know, um, but I was surprised because I was expecting my talk not to be very interesting and not to be very, them not to be very interested in the talk. And uh, they packed the room. I couldn't believe it. It was... Uh, you know, it was, it was, they were full, so there was a lot of interest there among the youth at the, at the, about this topic. And my topic is on Mormon temples and Freemasonry. And as more temples are built around the world, questions rise up about uh, the impact of Freem that Freemasonry may have had on the temple ceremony. Indeed, there's several websites and YouTube videos that bring this up. And invariably, these videos and websites bring up the topic in a way to make any possible connection seem unchristian or nefarious. Well, unfortunately, it can strip almost any topic of its cultural and historical significance and make it seem sinister. As I thought about this issue, I realized I have a difficult problem to overcome. I think I can safely assume that very few of you, I know there are a couple at least, but very few of you have participated in a Masonic ritual. And not all of you have been inside an LDS temple. Furthermore, we want to be respectful of both organizations and stay within the bounds of what is appropriate to talk about in public. So how can I talk about a subject that I can't talk about? Yeah. So to help you understand the relationship between LDS temple ceremonies and Masonic rituals, I need to give some background. I should also clarify, I am not a Freemason. So I'll have to thank Master Masons Greg Kearney and Ned Scarsbrick for their input, and they both read my talk. Freemasonry has been around a long time. You can trace its origins back to medieval stonemason guilds of the Middle Ages. The first reference to masonry goes back to York, England in 975. 
But the operative stonemasons guilds, stonemason guilds started to collapse with the changing economy in the late 1600s. And they decided to open up their membership to others who did not directly practice the craft. Then the explosion of information on modern Freemasonry really started when a Grand Lodge was formed in London in 1717. And since that time, over 50,000 books and pamphlets of articles have been written on that subject. And I'm going to list them here. No, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> but there's so much written on it and such a variety of opinions that it would be impossible to cover all of it in the time I have. But I'm going to try and get a few main points across. First of all, Freemasonry is one of the oldest and largest non-religious, non-political, fraternal organizations and charitable organizations in the world. It has about four million members worldwide. Its members are expected to be of high moral standing. They're encouraged to speak openly about their membership in Freemasonry. Only men are allowed to be Masons. Okay, only men. And they meet together in a group known as a lodge. The organization teaches moral and social virtues through participation in a series of ritualistic or ritual dramas. These dramas are a progression of plays which are memorized and performed within each lodge. They use stonemasons, customs, and tools as allegorical guides and are believed by many to follow ancient rituals. The ceremonies demand a high degree of personal involvement. For example, one of the ceremonies dramatizes the murder of a man named Hiram Abiff, who is claimed to be the architect for, who is claimed to be the architect for Solomon's temple. The basis of this story comes from 1 Kings chapter 7, which talks about Hiram of Tyre, a widow's son of the tribe of Naphtali. In 1 Kings we read that he is tasked to make many of the features of Solomon's temple, including the basin with the 12 oxen. In this dramatization, if you were the initiate you would be playing the part of Hiram Abiff in a dramatic play. The Freemasons use this active participation to reinforce the learning of the moral and social virtues. They literally put you in the play to teach you what they want you to learn and to remember. So my father was a very successful biology teacher. He involved his students in a play where they acted out how DNA replicates. They actually had a play for that. So one day, we got a phone call in my home from one of his former students who was attending Yale University. And he excitedly related how he just passed his biology test by remembering what happened during the play. You know, Sally did this and talked to this person and Fred split off and, you know, that kind of stuff. It worked really well. But Freemasonry instills in its members a moral and ethical approach to life. Its values are based on integrity, kindness, honesty and fairness. Freemasonry teaches concern for all the people, care for the less fortunate, and help for those in need. They have traditionally cared for widows and orphans and engaged in acts of charity. These activities were important historically as government aid for the poor did not exist until fairly recently. Mozart's widow is one of the most famous to receive such charity. In modern times, they still participate in acts of charity, such as funding for children's hospitals. Freemasonry is not a religion, however. Masons make no claim to helping people obtain salvation. They accept members of every faith, the only requirement being a belief in God, as no atheist can be made a Mason. Freemasons are supporters of law and order and have members who are considered to be people of high standing in the community. Notable Masons include several of the founding fathers of the United States, such as George Washington and Benjamin Franklin. Other Freemasons include nobility of Great Britain, the German emperors William I and Frederick III, as well as nobility and government leaders of many European countries. Many of the ideas of equal rights, elections, swearing on the Bible, and a majority of rules found in the constitutions, and majority rule found in constitutions of many countries, can be traced back to Masonic beliefs and practices. So, with that short description of this altruistic and law-abiding group, 
why would anyone think there's a problem? Why are people concerned about the Freemasons? And how does that relate to Mormonism? Well, the first problem some people have with Freemasonry is the insistence on secrecy. Even Joseph Smith commented, the secret of Masonry is to keep a secret. While Masons are open about who belongs to their group, they make promises not to reveal the ceremonies that occur within their lodge. You can read many of the ceremonies yourself in Duncan's Ritual of Freemasonry, which was printed in 1866. But Masons believe that lessons learned through the rituals are best understood when personally experienced, so they don't talk about them very much. Talk about, talking about them ruins the plot twists in their plays. They don't like spoilers. The Masons have instances in their ceremonies where they remind, remind the initiates, initiates of the importance of secrecy. These have historically been given with a description of the terrible things you would rather have done to you than reveal the rituals within Freemasonry. I remember as a child where we used to do the childhood rhyme, uh, cross my heart and hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. I don't know if any of you guys have said that before, but yeah. Well, this somewhat gruesome child's rhyme is very similar to the types of oaths within historic masonry as well as historic temples, LDS temple ceremonies. Many opponents of masonry and Mormonism have claimed that these oaths are not oaths of secrecy, but oaths of vengeance and calls for violence. They are not, or at least they're not intended to be such. The second problem we have, we have with Freemasonry is its relationship with religion. Remember, there's no promise or expectation of salvation within Masonry, and it is not a religion. They accept members of all faiths and encourage their members to attend the church of their choice. Many argue that Masonry developed as a secular way to deal with things in a hyper-religious era. But with an emphasis on morality and belief in God, some have argued that Masonry is a pseudo-religion, and since it does not include Christ, it must be an evil substitute. The Catholic Church has historically had a particularly antagonistic relationship with Masonry, and I'm going to give a few reasons why. In the 18th century, there, there were condemnations by Pope Clement XII in 1738 and Pope Benedict XIV in 1751. In addition, there was a condemnation given by Cardinal Giuseppe, Giuseppe, Giuseppe Ferreo. I always massacre the Italian names. If they were German, I'd do fine with them, but the Italian I don't do very well with. <laughs> he was the Secretary of State for the Papal States in 1739. These condemnations cited the secrecy with which the Masons surrounded themselves, the oaths they swear, those oaths we just talked about, and the suspicion of acting against the peace and good order of society. It is probable the Pope also suspected them of heresy due to their meetings where both Catholics and non-Catholics met together regularly, which at the time was frowned upon and could lead to possible church discipline. It has been alleged that the first papal condemnation in 1738 came about partially, at least, because of Andrew Michael Ramsey. Now, Andrew Michael Ramsey was an English knight who moved to France. And he tried to get people involved in Freemasonry. Well, the French, they weren't really very interested in a group that, that centered around the work of stonecutters. I mean, who wants to join that group? So in 1738, Ramsey made a very famous speech outlining a new and provocative history for Masonry. And we don't know if Ramsey was sharing the truth, sharing his personal beliefs, or sharing a story of fiction. We simply don't know. But he put forward the claim that Masonry wasn't born of stonecutters in Scotland, but instead came from ancient origins through the Crusaders to the Holy Land that had made vows to restore the temples to the Christians. Suddenly, there was a great flurry of interest in Freemasonry. It was alleged at that time, and many believe today, that the Knights Templar, many of whom had been imprisoned and excommunicated by the Catholic Church on Friday the 13th in 1307, had found sanctuary among the Masons in Scotland. It was further alleged that they had shared the secrets of the Temple Mount with the Masons. 
This narrative creates the tie the Masons have with the Knights Templar that we often see in books and movies today. Allegedly, the Masons also offered sanctuary to some of the early Protestant reformers, which certainly would not have made some of the leadership in the Catholic Church very happy. In, 18, in, the late, in Italy, in the late 1800s, there was a nationalist movement which sought to take the secular power away from the Catholic Church. Two of the leaders of the nationalist movement, uh, Camillo Benso, the Count of Cavour, and Giuseppe Garibaldi, were both Freemasons. And so the Pope put out a string of papal bulls condemning masonry in the hopes of weakening these two men and retaining the Catholic Church's secular power in Italy. In modern times, an Italian Masonic lodge named Propaganda Dua, or P2 Lodge, was headed by a, name, uh, headed by a man named Lucio Gelli. Many high government officials belonged to this lodge. But several within the lodge were involved in government scandals, including bank fraud involving the Vatican Bank, bribery, corruption, and possibly murder. Uh, the, the Masonic Grand Lodge in Italy took immediate disciplinary actions against the members of this lodge and erased the propaganda dua from its roles. Its charter was revoked in 1976 because the behavior violated Masonic values. So from these examples, we can see why there might be a historic antagonism between Masons and Catholics. Among Protestants, there's a mixed view of Masonry. The anti-Masonic rhetoric comes from the fundamentalist evangelical Christians who believe that Freemasonry should be regarded as an evil organization devoted to the occult. This criticism started in the 1800s and it continues to this day. Now just for a moment, we have to take a side story uh, and turn our attention to Bavaria. I would say Germany, but back then it was just Bavaria, where there are problems with a non-Masonic group that many people confirm, confuse with the Masons. This group was known as the Illuminati. Cue scary music, right? In 1776, Adam Weishaupt, the dean of the law faculty at the University of Ingolstadt, established the Order of the Illuminati and constructed a legendary history. By constructed means he made it up. A legendary history that traced the organization's origins to Persia a thousand years earlier. Unlike Masonry, which tries to remain non-political, Weishaupt liked the political revolution that was going on in America and planned to use his new organization to overthrow the Kingdom of Bavaria and replace the monarchy with a form of Republican government. A year later, Weishaupt was initiated as a Freemason in Munich and used that Masonic relationship to recruit heavily among the Masons for followers to join the Illuminati. In 1784, eight years after their founding, the group was discovered and banned from Bavaria along with the Masons. The aggressive measures taken by the police, and you can imagine what some of those aggressive measures might have been in 1784, but it destroyed the entire order, but rumors continue to persist even now. Um, since that time, the Order of Illuminati have become the favorite bad guys in modern novels and movies and a staple among conspiracy theorists. Just think, if things had gone differently for, with the U.S. Revolution, the U.S. Founding Fathers could have been the equivalent of the Illuminati in movies and books today. The important thing to remember is they were never a Masonic Lodge, and they are not what is portrayed in movies today. In more modern times, the Nazis under Adolf Hitler, using an 1897 book titled The Protocols of the Elders of Zion, taught that the Jews secretly controlled the Masons and the two groups working together were working together toward world domination. Anti-Semitism became closely tied to anti-Masonry. The irony of this is that there were very few Jews involved in Masonry at that time. The Freemasons were mostly Christians, especially in Germany. The anti-Semitic and anti-Masonic protocols of the Elders of Zion book was actually put together by the Russian secret police. Nevertheless, it became, so in other words, it was a fake. It was a fake story, fake book. It was forgery. Nevertheless, it became a central part of Nazi propaganda and is still read in many countries today. Uh, for example, in some countries in the Middle East. When cities were captured, 
Within 24 hours, the Nazis would burst into the Masonic lodges. The SS would go in there. They would gather up all the books and records and send them all to Berlin. The Nazis were hoping to learn the ancient mysteries of the temple, and they believed the Masons were hiding them from the world. When the Russian military invaded Germany, they captured the libraries and sent them back to Moscow. And the libraries were not returned until the year 2000. Since that time, scholars have looked at that book, and they have found no great secrets. They just found who visit, who was the lodge, what days, and you know. There was, so there was no great secrets of the temple, and there was no great scandals. There was really just nothing there. In early America, Freemasonry was very popular for a time, and then fell out of favor. In 1826, a high-profile case. This is 1826. Those dates sound familiar for us LDS people. It's close to a time that we're familiar with. High-profile case of a bricklayer named William Morgan threatened to expose the rituals of Freemasonry. Now, Mr. Morgan disappeared, um, and he was presumed murdered. His publisher went ahead and published his book, but there was a huge public outcry. It was in all the newspapers, and as, as, his, as the people were sure that the Masons had killed Mr. Morgan. Everybody knew he was going to reveal the Masonic ceremony, and so they were sure the Masons killed him. This led to the Masons falling out of favor for a time, and a new political party known as the Anti-Masonic Party was organized. So they not only had the existing political parties, but the Anti-Masonic Party was there. W.W. Phelps was a member of that party. He edited a newspaper called The Lake Light, and then later published the Ontario, Ontario Phoenix. Both of them uh, anti-Masonic newspapers. That's what they were. Their whole purpose was to be anti-Masonic. He later joined the church and became a scribe for Joseph Smith, an editor for the Evening and Morning Star and the Times and Seasons, as well as having various important church callings. The widow of Mr. Morgan, Lucinda Morgan, later Lucinda Morgan Harris, also joined the church. And some believe he was, she was sealed to Joseph Smith, although the evidence of this is uncertain. This brings us to the connection with the story of Mormons. The saints had suffered much at the hands of the mobs of far west Missouri. They escaped back east across the Mississippi River to Illinois where they built the city of Nauvoo. Joseph Smith was looking for a way to protect the members of the church from their antagonistic non-Mormon neighbors. And he became interested in Freemasonry. As part of their ceremonies, the Masons take an oath to protect and care for each other. It seemed like a perfect solution. The saints would become Freemasons, and they would fall under the protection of their Masonic non-Mormon neighbors. While at the same time, they would be learning the rituals, the ancient rituals of Masonry, which at the time were believed to date back to the time of Solomon. Apostle John Witso later wrote that Joseph Smith was initiated into the Masons to foster the spirit of brotherhood and to lessen the mob persecutions to which the church had been subjected to in Ohio and Missouri. I mean, if you're always considered an other and separate, you might as well join them somehow, and what better way to do it than joining the Rotary Club? You know, and that's what this was. This was like joining the Rotary Club. Ultimately, Joseph's attempt to win sufficient friends through Masonry to stop the persecution failed. It is alleged that Joseph gave the Masonic cry of distress during his martyrdom and yet his non-Mormon Masonic brothers did nothing to help. Some were likely among the murderers. This made Brigham Young later say, in reference to those Illinois Masons, that Joseph and Hiram were put to, get, put to death by Masons. The Warsaw Lodge, which invited some of those men to participate in the lodge even after they'd been indicted for the murders of Hiram, Hiram and Joseph, temporarily lost their charter for not following Masonic rules and standards. So, to change the subject slightly, at this point, many LDS members question how Joseph Smith and the Nauvoo Mormons could join the Masons when the Book of Mormon clearly states that secret combinations are of the devil. And Masons keep their ceremonies secret, so therefore, they're a secret combination, right? Even Martin Harris, who was an anti-Mason himself, advertised the Book of Mormon as a new anti-Masonic Bible. So one of our Sunday School guides, the Guide to the Scriptures, defines secret combinations as an organization of people bound together by oaths to carry out the evil purposes of the group. 
Then in 2 Nephi 9, 9, speak, speaking of the devil, it says that he stirreth up the children of men unto secret combinations of murder and all manner of secret works of darkness. In General Conference, Elder Melvin J. Ballard said, the Book of Mormon teaches that secret combinations engaged in crime present a serious challenge, not just to individuals and families, but to entire civilizations. Among today's secret combinations are gangs, drug cartels, and organized crime families. The secret combinations of our day function much like the Gadiant and robbers of the Book of Mormon times. They have secret signs and code words. They participate in secret rites and initiation ceremonies. Among their purposes are to murder, plunder, steal, and commit whoredoms and all manner of wickedness contrary to the laws of their country and also the laws of their God. So if we compare these prophetic warnings with the Freemasons, they don't really fit the definition of secret combinations. Freemasons as a group do not plan murders. They plan how to fund hospitals. Freemasons do not plan to overthrow the governments. So that would be the Illuminati. Freemasons don't plunder, steal, and commit whoredoms. They, in fact, teach against those things and expel members who engage in those activities. So on December 29, 1841, the Nauvoo Masonic Lodge was organized. On March 15, 1842, so this is December to March, March 15th, Joseph Smith was initiated as an apprentice and raised to the level of Master Mason. On May 4th, four months later, Joseph introduced the new endowment to nine men on the second floor of the red brick store in Nauvoo. He had the second floor prepared for the event by having canvases hung, partitioning off the second floor space into five rooms, representing the creation, the Garden of Eden, the earth after Adam and Eve's expulsion, the present day world, and the celestial kingdom. Nine of Joseph's close-up followers were given their first endowments there. At the conclusion of the endowment, Joseph told Brigham Young, this is not arranged right, but we've done the best we could under the circumstances in which we are placed. And I wish you to take this matter in hand and organize and systematize all these ceremonies with the signs, tokens, penalties, and keywords. Brigham commented, I did so, and each time I got something more. So that when we thought the when we when we went through the temple at Nauvoo, I understood and knew how to place them there, and we had our ceremonies pretty correct. Pretty correct. So if Joseph created the temple endowment ceremonies after becoming a Mason, did he just copy the ideas presented in the ceremonies from Freemasonry? To address that, let's first talk about what really goes on inside of an LDS temple to the extent it's appropriate. The first and most familiar ordinance in the temple is baptism for the dead. Baptisms are performed in a font that rests on the back of 12 oxen. The font is modeled after the basin described in Solomon's temple in 2 Chronicles 4.4. It stood upon 12 oxen, three looking to the north, three looking to the west, and three looking to the south, and three looking to the east. And the sea was set upon them, above upon them, and their hinder parts toward the inward. And then after baptism, of course, we confirm them as members of the church. The second ceremony in the temple is the washing and anointing ceremony, where one is symbolically washed and anointed. This is recorded in the books of Exodus, chapter 40, verses 12 and 13, where it says, And thou shalt bring Aaron and his sons unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation and wash them with water. And thou shalt put upon Aaron the holy garments and anoint him and sanctify him that he may minister unto me in the priest's office. Third, there is the endowment ceremony, where through dramatization, one symbolically falls from the presence of God, makes covenants to follow God and Jesus Christ, and eventually returns back to the presence of God. Fourth, there is a sealing or marriage ceremony, where couples are sealed to each other, and where parents and children are sealed to one another as families for time and all eternity. So how does this compare with Freemasonry? In Freemasonry, there is no baptism. In Freemasonry, there is no confirmation. In Freemasonry, there is no washings and anointings, except perhaps in one very obscure rite that is unlikely to have been familiar to Joseph Smith. In Freemasonry, there is no sealing. Only men are allowed in ceremonies, so the whole idea of sealings between men and women would be completely foreign. 
In Freemasonry, there's no concept of work for the dead. In Freemasonry, there are no ordinances that relate to salvation through Jesus Christ. In Freemasonry, things are done democratically, and your relationship with your fellow man is taught. While in LDS temples, all judgments and covenants are with God. Most of what is taught in the temple is not Masonic. As one person put it, the gestalt, or entire concept, is different. There are, however, a few similarities that create questions, and I will go over them a bit later. Many of the early saints who went through the Nauvoo Temple Endowment were already Freemasons. These included Brigham Young, Willard Richards, William Marks, Hiram Smith, and Heber C. Kimball. They seemed to believe that Freemasonry was an apostate form of temple worship from Solomon's Temple. Just as they had no problem with Joseph receiving revelation on apostate practices in Christianity, they had no problem with Joseph receiving revelation on how the temple ceremony should be carried out. They didn't seem to believe the temple ceremony was simply a Masonic ceremony. W.W. Phelps and Lucinda Morgan Harris, bold, both avid anti-Masons, remember Lucinda having her first husband allegedly killed over Masonry? They had no problems being endowed in the Nauvoo Temple. They clearly didn't believe the temple ceremony was a Masonic ceremony. After the temple ceremonies were performed in Nauvoo, the Masonic Lodge continued to operate. So clearly the other church members who were Masons, they also didn't feel the temple replaced Masonry. Even anti-Mormon writer Fanny Stenhouse wrote, it has always been commonly reported and to a great extent believed that the mysteries of the endowment house were only some sort of initiation for the rites of Masonry. But I need hardly say that this statement when examined by the light of facts is altogether ungrounded and absurd. So if knowledgeable Mormons and Mormon critics have indicated that the Mormon temple ceremony is not the Masonic ceremony, why does the, connection of a, why does the question of a connection still exist? Well, it exists because there are a few similarities between Masonic rituals and a few of the phrases and actions used in the endowment ceremony. It is only with the endowment ceremony there is confusion. There is no confusion relative to other temple ceremonies such as baptism and sealing, which are not Masonic in nature. Additionally, there are some Masonic-like symbols related to temples. So let's deal with these similarities. Let's first talk about the symbols on the Salt Lake Temple. So before the Salt Lake Temple was built, Brigham Young sent architects all over Europe to look at many of the great cathedrals. It is likely they got many of their design and symbol ideas from these structures. We can see that the symbols related to temples and temple architecture have deep roots in Western Christian culture. On several structures in Europe, you can find handshakes, stars, pentagrams, the all-seeing eye. Um, here are a few pictures of the all-seeing eye. This one was um, from the uh, uh, Capuchin Crypt in Rome. And then we have so several, let's see, that's above the painting. You see a little, the triangle uh, above the painting with has an eye in it. Uh, lots of churches in Vienna, Austria, we took these pictures. There's one at the very top there. There's one there. Um, the, um, I've also seen them in the Czech Republic. And a YSA group from Sicily told me that the, those symbols were all over and very commonplace in all their local churches. So this reinforces what Master Mason Greg Kearney stated to me, that it is his belief that many symbols in Freemasonry predate the, Masonic, the, the, the modern Masonic Lodge. Um, of course, this symbol also exists on the back of your dollar. It's on U.S. currency. One large anti-Mormon website claims that the phrase holiness to the Lord that is on our temples has been copied from the Masons because it also often appears on the wall of the lodge. But it occurs several times within the Bible, usually in conjunction with ancient temples. And there are other symbols within temples and within Masonry, uh, but we don't have time to go through each of them. But let's talk about the ceremonial similarities. Yeah. So the endowment ceremony is presented as a ritualistic drama. Masonic ceremonies are also ritualistic dramas. So in that general form, they're similar, even though they're totally different dramas. The endowment ceremony talks with the talks with the or starts with the creation and the Garden of Eden and moves us progressively through our return to God's presence. Well, the Master Mason drama storyline focuses on the murder of a master builder of Solomon's temple and is designed to teach character and integrity. There are some critics who claim 
there's one Masonic group in France that used the Garden of Eden in their rituals, so therefore that's where Joseph Smith must have gotten it. Um, of course, it was a woman's ritual in France, and since women can't be Masons, we know it was a non-authorized group. It was a non, really non-Masonic group. And it's highly doubtful Joseph was even aware of these rituals. In any case, there, I believe there are other sources for the Garden of Eden story, like the Bible and the Prologate Price, other than a small group of women <laughs> meeting in a secret lodge in France. Um, my esteem of Joseph would go way up if he was able to discern that from that thing. So, oh well. There are some short word phrases and actions used in the temple ceremony that are similar to word phrases and actions used in masonry. But the Masonic word phrases and actions are not related to the themes, teachings, or covenants made in the temple. In other words, even those places where the actions are similar, they have completely different meanings. Joseph seems to have taken some of the actions and completely repurposed them. It is also interesting to note that the similar short phrases that are currently used are not critical phrases in the endowment ceremony. When the endowment ceremony was first performed in Nauvoo, it was much longer, and it has been shortened over the years, and those Masonic-like phrases have been almost entirely removed. At this point, we might want to stop and talk about the nature of Revelation. Brigham Young said, when God speaks to people, he does so in a manner to suit their circumstances and capacities. Should the Lord Almighty send an angel to rewrite the Bible, it would in many places be very different from what, what it is now. And I will even venture to say that if the Book of Mormon were now to be rewritten, in many instances it would be material different from its present translation. Revelation comes, through men, or comes from God, but it comes through men. Too often we think that whatever comes out of the mouth of an apostle or prophet must be exactly what God said word for word. But if that were true, we wouldn't have so many wonderful airplane analogies in general conference. <laughs> our language becomes filtered by our experience. Joseph Smith, Brigham Young, and many members of the church in Nauvoo were familiar with the language of masonry. So one would be very surprised if it didn't crop up in their writings and teachings. Catholic scholar Massimo Introvigini writes, anti-Mormons often read too much into similarities between the endowment and Masonic ritual. He goes on to say, Smith had used the Masonic language of the rituals for the purpose of confirming his followers familiar with Freemasonry into a doctrine which had no similarities with anything they had heard in the Masonic lodges. So Masonic rites confirm a series of degrees upon the individuals. The three basic degrees are entered apprentice, fellow craft, and master mason. Each of these degrees has its own ceremony, and together they're known as the Blue Lodge. They're called that because the book is blue. This is the Blue Lodge. It has a blue cover. And as the initiate makes promises, he shakes hands or performs other physical movements to signify his agreement. If you think about it for a moment, there are a number of ways in our culture to represent making promises or covenants, including signing our name on paper, shaking hands with another person, raising our right hand to the square, being immersed in water, eating bread and drinking water or wine, or even the American TV cowboy customer spitting on your hand and then shaking hands. All of these are tokens of the promises we are making. Through time, God has used various methods or signs to represent the making of covenants. In Genesis 17:11, talking about circumcision, it says, and it shall be a token of the covenant betwixt you and me. In Genesis 9:12, God talks about the rainbow and says, this is a token of the covenant which I make between me and you. In Exodus 12:13, when the blood is put on the doorpost, God says, and the blood shall be to you for a token. In the Book of Mormon, when Captain Moroni asked for people to follow God in Alma 46.21, the people rent their garments in token or as a covenant that they would not forsake the Lord their God. So a token is a physical action that God asks us to do as we make promises. Remember, we make tokens of promises every day as we sign our names to important documents. Even documents that say may seem trivial, such as the pieces of paper in your checkbook as you write your donation to Fair Mormon. No, I didn't say that. <laughs> So, uh, but signing our name is a physical action to represent the promises that we are making. So in 2 Kings, 
Naaman was asked to wash himself seven times in the River Jordan to be cured of leprosy. Now, we all know that the water in the River Jordan did not cure his leprosy. You know, it'd be like bathing seven times in the Provo River. It wouldn't do it. Uh, but rather, it was Naaman's willingness to humble himself before God that paved the way for God to cure him. He did what God asked him to do, and that was the important thing. Whatever the physical action is that we do, the important thing is the covenant or the promise we make, and not how we symbolize that promise. Now, we do have to note, however, the Lord has mandated to us certain ways to represent certain covenants, like the sacrament, just as he mandated Naaman to wash seven times in the river. So we should not discount the divine source of these tokens. There are other optional degrees in masonry which are organized into two groups. They have the York Rite and the Scottish Rite. Now, these are optional degrees. Uh, one of the ceremonies in the York Rite is called the Royal Arch Degree, and it has been singled out in a few books as a possible source for the temple because of its similarities. The Royal Arch Ceremony involves priestly robes and passage through a veil into a Holy of Holies. But before we get too excited about that and make too much of these similarities, we need to remember that Joseph Smith was a third-degree Blue Lodge Master Mason, and as far as we know, never participated in or received the Royal Arch degree. There were a few members in Nauvoo who were members of the Royal Arch, such as Newell K. Whitney. We have no record of Joseph Smith ever taking those additional steps. Additionally, the similarities of having priestly attire, a temple veil, and a holy of holies are clearly referenced in the Bible, so we don't need to look for another source. Both Masons in their lodge and, and Mormons in their temple endowment use aprons, but the aprons are different and have very different meanings and very different purposes. The green LDS apron can be traced back to Genesis 3-7, and the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. The Masonic white lambskin apron refers to the aprons worn by stonemasons and quarries and represents to the masons the honor of a pure life. Early saints believed that both Freemasonry and the temple endowment came from ancient temple rituals. Hugh Nibley, Stephen Ricks, Matthew Brown, and Jeffrey Bradshaw have done work showing ties between what is done in modern temples and ancient temples. As for the ancient origin of Masonry, now I'll, I'll repeat again, Greg Kearney simply states that many symbols within, pre, within Masonry predate Freemasonry. Our modern temples match the theme of ancient temples symbolically moving man from his fallen state back into the presence of God. While this is not the purpose of Masonic rituals, it is possible that some aspects of the Masonic rites were fashioned after some ancient temple themes. There is still much disagreement on the source of Masonic ritual and whether they are ancient or relatively modern. Many historians today believe the rituals are created in the 17th century. But there is clearly a biblical influence. One would expect that influence, as the Masons of that time were devout, practicing Christians surrounded by a devoutly Christian culture. So let me summarize things in a question and answer format. Question. Did Joseph simply copy the temple ceremony from the Masons? Answer. No. There is too much in the temple that is not related to what goes on in Masonry. Question, are there elements in the endowment ceremony that are found in masonry? Answer, yes, there are a few, but they've been completely repurposed. Certainly the temple ceremony contains some of the phrases, wording, and symbols that exist within masonry. But these things, both Masonic and biblical, were part of the world Joseph Smith lived in. Just as we use movie language in our speaking, it is not surprising to have some Masonic language in the world of Joseph Smith. Question, does Freemasonry go back to the time of King Solomon or is it a modern creation? Answer, ready for this? Drum roll, right? Drum roll. Answer, we don't know and we have no way of knowing. While members of the church like the idea of Mason, Masonry from the ancient temple, and it is what early church members believed and taught, current thought leans towards a more modern origin of Freemasonry. Nevertheless, even if there was a more modern origin, 
Masonry includes biblical temple themes and ancient symbols. Question, did Joseph Smith copy those similar similar elements from modern Freemasonry, or do they stem from Solomon's temple and other ancient temples? Answer, we don't know and have no way of knowing. Question, did Joseph Smith simply believe something was ancient that was really modern and copy it into a fake temple ceremony? Answer, no. Even if you stripped out all of the elements that overlap with masonry, the temple ceremony is surprisingly in alignment with ancient temples. You could, still, you could strip out all the Masonic elements and you'd still have a temple ceremony. The Lord wanted to give us a gift or an endowment. He directed Joseph Smith to create a ceremony where we would make covenants with God and receive promised blessings. The teachings, covenants, and promises within that temple ceremony do not come from masonry. Even if we were to take the position that Joseph Smith took the revealed covenants and designed a ceremony himself, which I'm not taking that position per se, but even if we take that position, to remind us of those covenants on a regular basis, Joseph Smith would still be a prophet acting within his calling. He would have the right to do that. We take the sacrament each week to symbolically reenact the Last Supper while we make covenants. In the temple, we are symbolically reminded of our purpose in life and how we should follow God. I know that theme comes from God and is ancient in origin. In conclusion, masonry focuses on man's relationship to man, while the temple endowment focuses on man's relationship to God. While there may be some passing similarities between some Masonic rituals and the temple ritual of the endowment, the teachings, the covenants, and the purposes are completely different. Did Joseph Smith use some words and symbols from Masonry to create the temple ceremony? Probably, but only a very small amount, and he repurposed them for a different meaning. Did the Masons use words and symbols from Solomon's temple to create the Masonic ceremonies? Or were they purely 17th century creations? I don't think anybody knows that answer for sure. But in my opinion, it really doesn't matter. Because the claim Joseph Smith borrowed this endowment ceremony from Masonry, whether created in the 17th century or not, is clearly false. While there are a few similarities, the entire purpose and intent is different. Instead of believing that Joseph Smith copied the ceremony from the Masons, it makes much more sense to say that Joseph Smith received the promises and covenants of the temple from God and from the scriptures. But he also adapted and repurposed some things he was exposed to in Freemasonry to assist in that temple ceremony. Whether those few repurposed Masonic elements are of ancient or modern origin, I'll leave up to you. I have personally witnessed the influence in miracles of God within the walls of the temple. And the power that keeping the covenants we make there has had in my life. The temple creates a sacred space for us to worship God. As we participate in temple ordinances, we set ourselves on the path to return to him, blessing our own lives and the lives of our families. Thank you. And now my daughter's going to tease me because she says I can never get through a talk without getting weepy. <laughs> so. Okay. Um. Build this DNC 958, Kirtland 1833. Build a house in the which house I designed to endow those whom I've chosen with power from on high. Does this verse not show that the temple ceremony is from the Lord? I believe the temple ceremony is from the Lord. I believe that. How much how much came from the, the culture of Joseph Smith or from masonry or whatever, I don't know. But as far as, if you were to ask me, does the temple ceremony come from the Lord, I'd say yes. Is it designed exactly like the Lord put it there? 
I don't know. I don't know that. Uh, you know, it could be like the brother of Jared and lighting the boat. I'm not sure. Uh, and so I don't have to take a position on that either way. But the, as far as temple ceremony endowment, is it from God? Absolutely it is. Did masonry play a role in the Kirtland Bank collapse? That's a great question. I think you should ask that of Elizabeth Kuhn. Do we know if Freemasonry being accepted by Joseph Smith Jr. contributed to W.D. Phelps' apostasy from the early church? I don't believe it did. Uh, you know, is it possible? Uh, you know, we, it's hard for us in hindsight to read the minds of people, but I think W.W. Phelps and all of the Masons within the church uh, stayed faithful. Brigham Young tried to reestablish Masonry when he moved here to Utah. He contacted the Mexican uh, Grand Lodge first, uh, and they turned him down because of plural marriage. Uh, didn't fall within the standards of masonry, at least I believe that's the reason they did. And then um, he also claimed he sent a, a letter to another Grand Lodge, and, but there's no record of that Grand Lodge ever receiving that letter. I don't know why. So he con tried to continue masonry even after they moved to Utah. Do we know how high in Freemasonry Joseph Smith rose in its ranks? Well, he was a master mason of the Blue Lodge, which is... Uh, you know, it's the not, not one of the optional rites, but it's uh, being a Master Mason. I know we have at least one Master Mason in our crowds here, crowd here. Yes. Would you say that's the highest? Uh, every degree above the third degree is still a Master Mason. Okay. Uh, both the independent bodies, both the York Rite of which I am a member and the Scottish Rite, you are still a Master Mason even if you work your way through all of those degrees. Right. They, uh, I don't believe York Rite or Scottish Rite were available and I don't either, yes. Yeah, right. Yeah, there is a York right and a Scottish right. People argue, was it available, was it not available? I see no evidence it was available. You know, could it have been? Uh, you know, if somebody says, here it was, then I'd say, like, okay, maybe it was. But we have no record of that. We have no record Joseph Smith was involved with it. Do you think that masonry was the energy behind the Crusades to fight Islam? That's one of the theories, but I don't know. <laughs> uh, are you aware of an ancient Chinese creation myth where the creative... Beings used the compass and the square as creative tools, predating Solomon. Um, that's over my head. You'll have to ask somebody who's more familiar with that. That's interesting. You mentioned that Masonic ceremonies have elements that are similar to the temple. Wouldn't it be correct to say that some of the ritual actions involved in the two ceremonies are identical? Uh, yes, that would be correct to say that some of the ritual actions involved in the two ceremonies are identical. Uh, but again, they're repurposed, so they have different meaning, different, they're, they're, um, it's like if you sign a contract for your car, or you sign a job contract, both cases you're signing a contract, but they're different things. You know, one's for a car, one's for a job. So they're just different, different things, and there's, you know, a few actions. Well, thank you very much. Um, that's it for my talk.